There's a story that went around a long time ago about how that God came to Peter one day and said, Peter, we need to take a census, if you will. We need to do a roll call. We need to somehow or another find out how many people are going to be coming to heaven in the next 100 years. So Peter took it upon himself to come up with the next the group of people that would be coming in the next 100 years. So he came down to earth and started to do a door-to-door knocking, if you will, knocking on the door, asking people and talking to them and seeing if they were going to be able to go to heaven in the next 100 years. But he realized as he was working through all the different towns of all the different countries that this was something that was going to take forever, so there's no way in the world it was going to be done. So he went back up to heaven and he talked to God and he said, God, we've got to come up with a better way. And he proposed to God that a letter would be sent out, a letter identifying those who should be going to heaven in the next 100 years, and if people got that letter, then they would know that they were going, and then that would solve the problem about finding out, because we have all their names now on the address list, and the letter was sent, it was delivered, and it was received. So... Peter got the pearly gate printing press going and all these letters started going out and they started being mailed from heaven and they started arriving at different homes. Frank, you know what it said? You mean you didn't get one? (laughs) This morning we're going to be talking about God's beautiful garden above. What I'm talking about, of course, is heaven. Heaven is something that I hope each and every one of you here this morning wants to be a part of. I hope that this is your hope. I hope this is the thing that sustains you as you go through life. I hope this is the thing that you earnestly strive for. To be a part of the redeemed of all the ages. To be with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. To be with the great heroes of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And be able to spend eternity... A word that we can't even fully grasp, but spend eternity in God's beautiful garden above. In the 17th century, there was a guy by the name of John Milton. And some of you are maybe familiar with him, depending on what you learn in school now. But when I was in school, he was a writer that we had to study because his works made such a great significance on the literary landscape. But he wrote two books that are, are two books that are really prose, they're poems, but they're not like you think the, the rhyming type of poem. But yet in these two books, he basically talked about two things. He talked about paradise being lost and paradise being regained. Now he blended together some things from the Bible and some traditions and from uh, just mythical stuff. But These two books grabbed the whole entire world because they were interested in thinking about when paradise was lost or where the fall of man was in the Garden of Eden and how that God made it come back here in the second book that he wrote, Paradise Regained. And as I said, this is not a source for this type of thing. Um, It's just really interesting reading. But if we really want to discover about paradise lost and paradise regained, we have to come back to God's Word. Because in God's Word, we find the true story of paradise and how it was in the beginning and how it was lost and how it was, again, found because of what God has done for mankind. I don't think it's by accident. If you pick up a copy of God's Word 
and you look at the very beginning of it, it describes a beautiful paradise called Eden. And I don't think it's by accident if you pick up a Bible and you look at the very end of it, the very last book of the Bible, and start reading the chapters there, you find a paradise regained. There's the true story of paradise lost and paradise regained. We find it in God's Word. The secular world doesn't put a lot of emphasis on heaven. They don't think about heaven very much because they don't believe that God created the earth, then they've done away with the Garden of Eden, and so they think the Garden of Eden really wasn't a real place. Because they believe in evolution, and somehow or another all this just happened, that we evolved from lower animals, they believe that man has no soul, and therefore there is no need for immortality. Because they believe that the book of Genesis is just simply a fable, uh, then as you read along there in that story in the book of Genesis, they don't believe that it's really something that happened. It's just a myth, and therefore there never has been a fall from uh, mankind. There's never been a need for redemption. There's never been a need for a place called heaven. But for those of us who are believers... We believe without a doubt that there was a place called Eden that God created and we believe that there is a place now that Jesus Christ is preparing for us a place called heaven, God's beautiful garden above. Scott Slauson has been doing a wonderful job, outstanding job in teaching a class on Sunday mornings on the book, Sunday morning on the book of Genesis. And if you're missing that class, you're missing just a wealth of information. And so I hope whatever the reason is why you can't come to Sunday school on Sunday morning, that somehow know that that excuse will be resolved because you will learn some good and profitable things. And I say that because this morning I want us to spend some time in the book of Genesis. I want us to look at Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. And what we're going to do in this particular uh, lesson is not going to be your typical Uh, sermon you will hear, but instead we'll have more of a Bible study this morning. And I want us to spend some time going through Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and bring out some points about God's beautiful garden here on this earth, Eden, and then make some comparisons, some similarities, and some differences, if you will, to God's beautiful garden above. And even though I'll have the, on the screen here the scriptures that we're going to be looking at in Genesis, it may be helpful to you as you go through the book of Genesis, maybe even make some little notes uh, how that what happened in Genesis is going to be fulfilled when we get to God's beautiful garden above. So let's look at this this morning. Uh, let's put up on the screen the Garden of Eden and God's garden above. And somehow or another that got askew when we got on this computer here, but I'm hoping it will straighten itself out. But anyway, when we think about God's Garden of Eden that He created, we think about the fact that it was actually created by Jesus. If you look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Genesis chapter 2 begins by talking about the fact that God had finished everything that He needed to finish. God's creation was complete. And He created a very beautiful place called the Garden of Eden. Now someone may question the fact, was this actually created by Jesus when it says that God created 
the heavens and the earth, but you understand as you go through Genesis chapter 1, it refers to the fact that there is a plurality there and that there were different agents involved. But when we get to the New Testament, we discover this. Talking about Jesus Christ, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Jesus Christ evidently was the instrument that God used to create the world. So we think about the Garden of Eden there in Genesis chapter 2, and we realize that it was created by Jesus. But also when we start thinking about God's garden above, it also was created by Jesus. When we think about heaven, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 and verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus Christ left this earth and was dealing with his disciples as he was leaving them. He told them not to be troubled, that he was going to continue to be with them because in his father's house were many mansions and that Jesus Christ was going to prepare this place for them. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. We read that and we think that somehow or another that God is creating a new earth for us here on this earth, but that's not what it's talking about. The Bible uses the idea of new here is the idea of a redoing or making something better than it was before. And of course, he is talking about a heaven. When this world has ended, we'll be going to a very special place that's been prepared for us by Jesus Christ. But also, as we look at the Garden of Eden, we discover that this was a place where mankind was created with dust. And we also discover that, as we read through Genesis chapter 3, that this man that was created by dust was going to return to dust. And so we move along in Genesis, we get to verse 7. In chapter 2, and it says, The Lord God formed of the dust of the ground, for man, man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. In verse 19 of chapter 3, we are reminded, Thou return into the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, and for dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. There in Genesis chapter 2, when God created the world through Jesus Christ and He formed mankind, He made mankind from the dust of the earth. And we know from reading later on, because of the circumstances that happened in the book of Genesis, that one day we too are going to return to the ground from which we came. And we can paint a very vivid picture here of the fact that as a person dies and their body starts to decay, that their body breaks down and eventually goes to the, through to the rudimentary elements of this earth, in a sense, returns back to all nature, all to the ground, to dust. But as we think about the Garden of Eden being a place that began with mankind being created with dust and how that from dust, or returning to dust, mankind must do one day, we think about also how in God's garden above, that dust is going to be recreated. Now, I want you to think about the power of God here, and I want you to think about the fact that with the promise that took place in Genesis chapter 2, that man shall return to dust. Think about the cycle that's taken place here. God took man and formed him from the dust and made him a living soul. But one day, because man dies, he is mortal, his body returns to dust. But God has given us a beautiful garden above called heaven. So notice what Jesus Christ does for us. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake 
to everlasting life. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth unto the resurrection of life. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like His glorious body. Now notice what's happening here as we go from Genesis to the Old Te- uh, from Genesis in the Old Testament to the books of the Bible in the New Testament, especially uh, as we move through the book of Revelation there at the end of the Bible. Notice what something that has started in the book of Eden or in the Garden of Eden and how is fully realized as we start thinking about God's garden above, because we have created with dust, we'll return to dust, but now. We get to heaven, dust is recreated. The Garden of Eden, as we start reading through it, we discover that it's described as a paradise. In fact, we open our Bibles in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. The next verse says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now you look at that verse and you say, Why in the world is it called a paradise? For example, why did John Milton write a book called Paradise Lost when you don't even see paradise in this particular verse. Well, we need to think for a few moments, why in the world do we call something a paradise or even refer to the Garden of Eden as a paradise? Well, look at it this way. Eden in the Hebrew means delightful, thus a delightful garden. But then you think about this particular idea, the word paradise is the Persian from the Persian word which means delightful garden. So when you think about Eden, you think about paradise. Is this another word for Eden? When you, whenever you read the book of, uh, of Genesis and you come to the word Eden, you could substitute the word paradise there if you wanted to because it simply means the same thing, Eden and paradise. God established for mankind on this earth a delightful garden, a beautiful garden, a paradise. But we also notice in God's garden above that there's also going to be a paradise. Remember when Jesus talked to the thief on the cross there in in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. He says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Folks understand the ramifications of that. He is telling this thief that they will be going to a place that is like the Garden of Eden. Because it was a paradise, and when the thief heard this, he immediately started thinking about how did Adam and Eve have it in the Garden of Eden. It's interesting, a little bit later on when we get into the epistles of Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, we have the story about how that Paul was called up into what he referred to as the third heaven. The Jews believed that there were three layers of heaven. There was the layer that uh, the birds flew in, the air around us. There was a layer that you saw the stars, the sun, and the moon. And then there was the celestial layer that was, of course, heaven. And Paul's called up into heaven to receive some visions. And notice what he refers to this place as being. He says how that he was called up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which not lawful for a man to utter. Now, we don't have time to discuss what he means by that, but basically he saw something that he could not even describe. It was so wonderful. But my point is this, the Garden of Eden was a paradise. That paradise, of course, was a beautiful garden that was created by God. And God has provided for us a beautiful garden called heaven 
or paradise. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Because of our faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, God wants to reward us, and He wants us to be rewarded with paradise. Also, as we move along in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, uh, we discover that uh, every need was supplied in the Garden of Eden. It says, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And that's symbolic of the fact that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had no need of anything. They didn't have to worry about being hungry. They didn't have to worry about anything because God provided every single thing they needed in the Garden of Eden. And so every need was supplied there. But we also see how that in God's garden above that every need is going to be supplied. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 16 says, They shall hunger no more. And I think that is a direct reflection upon the fact that every single need that we will have will all be supplied in heaven. It's not just about eating food, but it's about the fact that all of our needs will be supplied. But moving along, we also discover in the next part of the book of Genesis there in chapter 2, we discover that there's something called the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, if you're following along in the text, you move to this next thing that says, And the tree of life also was in the midst of the garden. Those of you who are familiar with Genesis chapter 2, you know this tree of life is what gave mankind immortality. It was a tree that Adam and Eve had access to. As long as they had access to this tree of life, they could live forever and ever and ever. But we also see as we start thinking about God's garden above, that it too has a tree of life to symbolize immortality. Verse 7 of chapter 2 of Revelation says, To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Notice how these two things are starting to equal out together how they were created both by Jesus, how dust is involved and how dust will be recreated, how both are paradise, how every need will be supplied, how that there is a tree of life. But notice also in the Garden of Eden, there was water that gave life. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10, if you're moving down through the text still, it says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. And the implication is this water is the water that watereth the Garden of Eden that gave it life, that gave it substance so it could produce and be the kind of garden God wanted it to be. Is it no wonder then as we start thinking about God's garden above, we think about the fact that there's water in that particular garden above that also gives life. Genesis 22, or Revelation 22 and verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. You see, the water which gives life in the Garden of Eden is replaced by a water that really gives life in God's garden above. But as we think about the Garden of Eden, as we read the description that we find there, we discover that this is such a beautiful place, a place that is pleasant to the eye, a place that is precious because it is one of a kind. And so as you move through Genesis chapter 2, you see another verse that leads us to this conclusion. He says, where there is gold, in verse 
11. And it says, And the gold of that land is good, that there is bedellum and ox stone. Now you read that particular passage, and you think about what we've read thus far, you think about the fact, well, why in the world is this even mentioned? I mean, you got Adam and Eve in Eden. you got Adam and Eve. They don't need anything at all. You got Adam and Eve, and God has given them a beautiful paradise that's the best place in the world to live in. They don't have to buy anything. They don't have to spend uh, their time earning money for anything. So why in the world, here in Genesis chapter 2, does it mention gold and the gold of that land is good and mention some other precious stones that we're not really familiar with? All that is happening here, folks, is God through Moses, is trying to make sure we understood how beautiful and how precious this place is. Gold is the most precious element here on this earth, and therefore God wanted us to understand that as we think about the Garden of Eden, we think about how beautiful it is and how precious it is. So it's no wonder then, as we start thinking about God's garden above, how it too is beautiful and precious and how the Bible brings this out in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to take the time to read all this this morning, but notice this, how that God uses similar language here in Revelation that he did in the book of Genesis describing Eden, but then he goes far and beyond to impress upon it with its preciousness. There was a city of pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the city, the walls were all garnished with, or the foundation of the wall was all garnished with precious stones and a list of all those things. And then the 12 gates were 12 pearls and every uh, several gate was of one pearl and the streets were as of gold. Now folks, I don't believe that when I get to heaven that I'm going to walk up to a city and there's going to be uh, walls there and there's going to have all these jewels here and I'm going to walk on some kind of pavement of gold. I believe heaven is a spiritual place, not a material place. But I believe John describes this for us to make us understand and appreciate the fact how precious and beautiful God's garden above is. He talks about the Garden of Eden. He talks about it having gold and a couple other stones and showing its beautifulness and its preciousness. But when we think about God's beautiful garden above, it's the most precious place that man has ever been a part of. The most beautiful place man has ever been a part of. But also when we think about the Garden of Eden, we think about companionship. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, as we move through the chapter, it says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. God understood that if we're going to live somewhere, that we need to have companionship. Uh, we, if we're truly going to be happy, uh, we need to have other people around us that we can interact with, that we can love, that we can love back, that we can spend time with. And so God says right here at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, He says, it's not good for man to be alone. And we know how the rest of the story goes here in chapter 2. He took a rib out of Adam's side and He created Eve, of course, who would become uh, the first woman. Let me emphasize the fact that God understood that if he, that mankind was truly going to be happy here in this paradise that he created for him in the Garden of Eden, that he needed companionship. 
And so we start thinking about God's garden above, and we think once again how this is fully carried out even more so when it comes to companionship. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, he says, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Not only will there be many that it says that will come from all parts of the world, but we'll get the opportunity to be in companionship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be with their God. That where I am, there you may be also. That, of course, is Jesus once again telling us. Now look what's happened here. In God's beautiful garden that he established here on this earth, in the Garden of Eden, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve. When we get to God's beautiful garden above, not only will we be with many people, the redeemed of all the ages, but we'll get to be with the heroes of the Old Testament. We'll get to be with God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. The ultimate, ultimate companionship. But unfortunately, and I'm sorry that's washing out here on this screen, but unfortunately you finish chapter 2 of Genesis and you get to Genesis chapter 3. One of the most horrible chapters we have in our Bibles. Because chapter 3 describes how paradise is going to be lost now, how that mankind is going to fall. But I think it's important we look at it for a moment. Because in it we see Satan, we see him lying, and we see sin on the earth for the first time. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree of which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in that day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. After we leave this beautiful description of the Garden of Eden in chapter 2, we come to chapter 3, and we see the ugliest thing of all. We go from absolute beauty to absolute ugliness. Because here we see Satan brought into the scene. Satan, who is the father of lies. Satan was trying to do what he could to make Eve sin. And even after she told him what God had said, he contradicts God and lies to Eve and says, that's really not the case. Here's what's really happening. As Paul Harvey says, we know the rest of the story. Eve, of course, took uh, a bite of this tree of knowledge and evil and then offered it to her husband. And as we say, the rest is history. But anyway, moving to chapter 3, we see how in this garden that God placed on this earth, the Garden of Eden, Satan showed up and there was lying and there was sin as the result of it. But I want you to notice what happens in God's garden above. Notice how there's going to be no more Satan, no more lying, and no more sin. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. 
Because of what happens here in Genesis chapter 3, a curse is placed upon mankind. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God has now cursed all of mankind. And chapter 3 puts it this way. Verses 16 through 19, And the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In thy conception and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shall thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall bring Forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, a curse was placed upon mankind. Everything changed. Complete beautifulness and happiness and everything that went along with God's garden here on this earth and Eden, all that was going to change now. Ugliness was going to be brought into the world. Crying was going to be brought into the world. Hard work was going to be brought into the world. Everything that makes this life miserable and everything that causes us sometimes not to enjoy this life was now brought into place because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But notice about God's garden above. Notice how this curse is going to be removed when we get there. Revelation 22 and verse 3 just simply says, And there shall be no more curse. Revelation 21 and 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither crying, nor, uh, sor- nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things, or the way things used to be, are passed away. So we see what we have here as we go through the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, we see... The ultimate conclusion that takes place in chapter 3 is that paradise is lost. The text reads this way in chapter 3 and verse 24. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Because of mankind's sin, because of what took place in the Garden of Eden, paradise is now lost. Thanks be to God this morning that I can promise you, and I know this without a doubt, that because of what God and Jesus Christ has done, that paradise can now be regained. Notice what the Bible says. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write for these words are true and faithful. God's going to regain paradise. He's going to make everything new again. He's going to start over and make a better place for us. That which was lost is going to be regained. In fact, the Bible tells us this. He says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, we may have lost paradise in Eden. But because of what God and His Son and Jesus Christ has done, we have paradise regained. Now, I don't know if this is something that intrigues you as as much as it intrigued me, but uh, a couple um, months ago when when Scott was talking about the creation story and talking about uh, the the Garden of Eden and the things in there, 
I started thinking about the fact how that everything that takes place in the Garden of Eden, again, takes place in God's beautiful garden above. Not only does it take place, but it takes place even better and more wonderful and, and so much spectacular than what happened in the Garden of Eden. But I also thought about the fact that everything that got messed up in the Garden of Eden will all be changed and made right again as we move into God's garden above. One final thing. I don't know if you noticed when you, this popped up on the screen when at the beginning in my title frame when it said God's beautiful garden above. How many of you noticed that was such a weird-looking tree? And why in the world did I pick that tree? Well, that tree, folks, is symbolic for everything we've been talking about this morning. It symbolizes the fact that God started with something that was very beautiful, but in between, man calls it to become very ugly. But God, in the end, makes it very right. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that we've already mentioned a portion of says, For without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. This morning we have talked about a very beautiful place, God's beautiful garden above, a paradise where every one of our needs will be met, where there will be no more sorrow and pain and heartache, there will be no more Satan to deal with, that we'll be with uh, the redeemed of all the ages and God and His Son Jesus Christ through all eternity, having every need met, the most wonderful, beautiful, precious place that we can ever dream of. But the only way that we're going to be able to get there is because we are Christians. Predicated because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we're willing to repent of our sins, confess His name, and be baptized in the watery grave of baptism for the remission of our sins. And we know that predicated upon that faith and that action that was a result of that faith, that God is going to be someone who will reward them that diligently seek Him. So if you're here today... And you're not going to heaven because you're not a Christian. Let's rectify that this morning and put you in the right way so that you can go to the right place. If you're here today and because of the way that you're living, you've turned your back on Christianity, uh, we want you to go to heaven with us. We want you to be able to spend eternity with the redeemed of all the ages. And there's something we can help you to do in a public way to take care of that. We want to help you. In fact, if there's any need that we can help you with this morning, we want you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.